Good morning again. Welcome. We're in Psalm 92 this morning. Please turn there in your Bibles and keep them open. Psalm 92. I struggled to write this sermon this week. My mind and heart have not been firing on all cylinders. I was hoping that Jesus would come back before today. But here we are. So let's pray and ask God to help us and help me. Father, thank you that you entrust the treasure of the gospel to be carried about in jars of clay like us and like me. Uh, help us this morning as we come again to your precious word to see the beauty and the value of the gospel. Uh, help us to take it with us as we leave in our various instances of failure and weakness and struggle. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. Most of the time when I've read a book on prayer, I've come away from it feeling very discouraged because you hear these amazing stories about super-duper disciplined Christians who pray lots and lots and spend all kinds of time and enjoy doing it. But uh, one of my favorite books on prayer, mainly because it was encouraging instead of discouraging, is a book called A Praying Life by someone named Paul Miller. One of his main points is that the deep cynicism that's in the air all around us in our culture, that this kind of cynicism destroys the childlike faith that's at the heart of a vibrant prayer life. Uh, here's one part where he's quoting a friend of his. Cynicism's dulled, partial truths often feel more real to me than the truths taught by Scripture. It's easier for me to feel skepticism and nothing than to feel deep passion. It just feels like we can't find joy in things, like we're too aware to trust or to hope. And then now here's the author himself going on. He says, Cynicism is the air we breathe and it's suffocating our hearts. Unless we become disciples of Jesus, this present evil age will first deaden 
and then destroy our prayer lives, not to mention our souls. Our only hope is to follow Jesus as he leads us out of cynicism. Uh, Our psalm this morning is meant to rescue us from the swamp of cynicism. It begins with the simple assertion that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to your name, O Most High. But in a cynical age, being thankful and being joyful, talking to a God that you cannot see, even singing about Him, singing to Him, all of that in our world can seem so naive, so ridiculous, so unrealistic. Here's another quote from that book. Cynicism looks reality in the face, calls it phony, and prides itself on its insights as it pulls back. But thanksgiving looks reality in the face and still rejoices at God's care. Thanksgiving replaces a bitter spirit with a generous one. In contrast to much of the air we're breathing around us, God really is there. God really is good, and God really is mighty. The miracles and the life and the resurrection of Jesus show us this more than anything. And so the main point of the psalm today is this. We have real reasons to be joyful in and about God, even in the face of great evil and suffering. The psalm seems particularly interested in staving off the cynicism of old age. Here's another way to think about it. We might have good reasons to be jaded, especially as we get older. But the psalm is telling us that we have even better reasons to be thankful, even when you're getting older. Let's dive in. We'll see how the psalm helps us to become more thankful and less bitter. First, you have that declaration of the goodness of praising God right at the beginning. It's good to give thanks. It's good to sing praises. It's good to declare God's steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. The idea there, by talking about morning and evening, these kind of sweeping characteristics of God's character, the idea is that we should know God. We should be well acquainted with what he's done for us so that we're grateful and glad. We should be growing deeper in our knowledge of who God is, what it means that he's shown his steadfast love. That's the language of relationship, of commitment, of covenant. How he has shown us his faithfulness, the ways that he's been working for thousands of years to graciously bring sinful human beings back into relationship with himself. And that climaxes with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it's not just a bare intellectual exercise It's not just a matter of knowing your Bible or studying your theology, as important as those things are. But these first couple verses show us that knowing God also reaches our hearts. It reaches our emotions. It says we should be a joyful, even a happy people. This joyful gratitude expresses itself not just in what you say, although it does do that, but it pours out into actual singing. The psalm even lists out a whole bunch of instruments affirming the goodness and importance of music for God's people. In our world, so much of the way that we now relate to music is as consumers. We have access to music 
in ways that our ancestors could have never imagined. But this psalm is not really talking about consuming music or even just listening to music. It's talking about producing music, about actively participating in it. So that even if all you do is sing, we all, in a sense, need to be musicians. That's part of what it means to know God and follow God. We should all be striving to be getting better at being musicians. We don't come to church just to witness a performance. We come to honor God and we come to encourage each other. And a big part of how we do that is by our singing. I realize that a lot of the way that we express joy can have a lot to do with our culture. But I think this is probably an area where we can always be growing as a church. Our lives and our worship and our singing should be joyful. In some ways, it's, it's easy to lament uh, in a world that's so cynical, in a world that is constantly bombarding us with everything that's wrong in the world and everything that we should be outraged over. It can feel very phony to be joyful. It starts to sound like we're talking about being fake or being happy clappy. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something else. There are so many things that we can worry about and stress about in our world, but we need to hear again that there are even better things that God has done for us and that God will do for us. We have a lot of reasons to be joyful. Look at verse 4. He says, You, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Verse 5 marvels at the greatness of God's works, the unsearchable depths and wisdom of his purposes and his plans for us and for our world. We, too, should be striving to be joyful and lively in our worship and our singing. God has done so much for us, not only as our creator and as our sustainer, which he's doing all the time, but especially everything that he's done for us as our redeemer, as our rescuer. In Jesus, God has conquered our greatest enemies, and he's rescued us from them. Our sin, the devil, the death. We are a forgiven and an adopted people. We are beloved and welcomed and protected by the Most High God. We're going to spend all of eternity plumbing the depths of who God is and what He's done for us. We'll never reach the bottom of discovering who God is. And even now, especially on Sunday mornings, we begin to do this, especially when we're gathering as God's people. So God's works for his world and for his people are unsearchably deep and rich so that it's not only right for us to respond with praise, but it's also good for us to respond with praise. God knows what's good for us. He's not trying to ruin our lives. He's not subjecting us to something boring that we have to do every Sunday that doesn't really serve any real purpose. God says, this is good for you. It is good for you to learn to sing about who I am. This will make you more joyful. This will give you greater perspective on what I'm doing in the world. But when we look out at the world, again, bombarded all the time. Look at what's wrong. Look at what's wrong. Look at all these people you should be so angry about. We look around at the world and we start to wonder if maybe all this talk about joy and happiness and God doing wonderful things, maybe it's too good to be true. Cynicism, in our world especially, is always lurking somewhere in the shadows. You see the darkness and the misery and the futility of life and work in this world. And you wonder if God really does care after all. 
if there's any actual reason for hope, or if it's just a fairy tale that weak people tell themselves to make themselves feel better while plugging their ears against the whispers and shouts of cruel reality. But verses 6 to 11, this middle section of the psalm, they tell us that there are a couple of great reversals coming down the pipeline. Things might look one way right now, but this is not how they're always going to be. And so the psalmist says, be careful about judging by appearances and thereby becoming jaded or hardened against what God's doing. The psalmist says in verse 6 that the world has this basic stupidity to it, this fundamental foolishness about it. It does not want to see or admit that sin and evil and selfishness cannot ultimately deliver on their promises. Verse 7 says, Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. You look out at the world and you see all kinds of people prospering and succeeding in it. Even though they are apathetic or even hostile to God, even though they are selfish and greedy and licentious toward other people, even though they are cheaters and liars and oppressors. And if that's true, it's easy to start to wonder if it really is good, after all, to praise the God of a world like this. But the psalmist says once again to us, as he said a couple times in the last few weeks, he says, zoom out. Take a bigger stock of what God is doing. We cannot and we should not let cultural and political evils rob us of our joy as God's people. In the end, God will destroy them. God cannot let them, God will not let them get away with it forever. History is full of examples of God doing this. But even if these evildoers make it to their deathbeds, happy and content with our families all around them, everything going great, the Bible and Jesus repeatedly teach that there is a full and a final judgment beyond death. They are doomed to destruction, but God is high forever. So it is still good to praise him together. We can, we should be joyful even in America in 2022. So in contrast to the fleeting swagger of the foolish and the evil, the psalmist says in contrast to them and where they're headed, God himself is always and constantly mighty above them. Verses 9 to 11 make a similar but a slightly different contrast. Once again, trying to help us to beat back the cynicism that is always beckoning us away from the joy that God wants for us. But now the contrast is between how God treats these two different groups. One of them, how God treats those who spite God. The other one, how God treats those who rely on him with childlike dependence and faith. In verse 9, we hear that God is going to scatter and overturn everybody who resists him, whether they are doing it outrightly, fighting him, or apathetically, avoiding him. But verse 10 says that God's going to exalt, he's going to lift up his people, 
those who admit that they are spiritually bankrupt, those who put all their hope in God's King Jesus. The psalmist says, You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. These are ancient images of strength and celebration and luxury. In the end, God lifts up his people, even though they are down low in the world and in its eyes. It happened most of all in Jesus' death and resurrection. His humiliating and shameful crucifixion was demanded by his own people and carried out by the mighty Roman Empire. And so it looks like total defeat. Looks like the tragic or laughable death of a crazed idealist under the merciless boot of cold, cynical power. The world hears the Christian gospel that our eternal destiny hinges upon how you respond to the miserable execution of some Jewish craftsman turned teacher 2,000 years ago, and the world laughs. It's so ridiculous. It's even offensive. But the world was and the world is wrong. God exalted Jesus. Like an exuberant wild bull, Jesus charged out of the tomb. Never to die again. And so the cross looks like a pathetic loss. But the resurrection shows that it was really his greatest conquest. Jesus was bearing the curse of our sin. He was defeating our deaths. He was vanquishing our tormentors so that he could give us the blessing of new life with God according to his perfect love and faithfulness planned from all of eternity past even before the universe even existed. And so in the resurrection life of Jesus, Jesus' celebration of victory over his enemies now becomes ours. Jesus' people now join him in the celebratory words of verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Those are now our words. It's good to praise God. It's good to be thankful for what he's done for us, especially in Jesus. And this gratitude should express itself in the gathered corporate musical worship of God's people. That was verses 1 to 5. But then verses 6 to 11 presented a couple of reasons that you might become cynical, all revolving around the apparent success of those who oppose God and His people. But they were reassuring us that in the end, God will win. Indeed, in Jesus' death and resurrection, He already has. Everything else is just a mopping up operation. But where does that leave us? When your back is hurting? When your kids are sassing you? When the world's going down the toilet? And as Walker Percy says somewhere, it's still only Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) Verses 12 to 15 bring us full circle. They bring us back to the goodness of praising God joyfully in light of what he's doing for his people. It says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. You have this language of a garden 
You have echoes of the Garden of Eden. God is bringing us back to the beginning, so to speak. He says, you're going to be like trees in my beautiful garden. When you know who God is, when you see what he's done for you, what he's going to do for you, God says, you are like a mighty tree. You're not like my little puny fruit trees, barely surviving life in Texas. But the psalm says, you're going to thrive. You have deep roots keeping you steady and nourished. You're not going to flourish temporarily like we heard about the wicked doing, but rather you are going to flourish for the long term. When we see more and more who God is, when His faithfulness and His steadfast love sink deeper and deeper and deeper into our bones, when we express our gratitude through prayer and singing with His people, we are growing and blossoming and fruiting like a majestic tree. You might not look like much, you might not feel like much, you might not be very successful or prosperous in the eyes of the world, but this psalm is saying you can and should have deep and lasting joy and contentment in the love of the Most High God. And the psalm says that it can even be true when you get old. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Literally, it says they are always fat and juicy. The runner-up title for this sermon was Fat and Juicy with Jesus. <laughs> the psalm says that even when you are old, if you know God, if you know Jesus, even then, you can and you should be declaring that God is upright, that He is my rock. There's no unrighteousness in Him. It means that when you are old, you can and you should be saying, God's not cheating me. God has never shortchanged me. He's not holding out on me. He is trustworthy. He is the foundation underneath when everything else is crumbling. Uh, there's a story about this guy named Polycarp. He was a Christian pastor in the second century who lived um, uh, way back when he was a disciple of the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, he lived a long time. Uh, he got caught by the Romans when he was in his mid-80s, and they were tying him up to burn him at the stake, and they were trying to get him to, to deny Jesus and say, hey, look, we don't have to burn you. You can just have a nice old retirement. Just deny Jesus, and we won't kill you. And as they're tying him up to the stake and putting wood under him and the smoke starting to, to get into his nose, they're telling him, hey, just, just say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, and we'll stop. Everything will stop. And there's this great line. He says, I'm 86 years old. I've been serving Jesus for 86 years, and he has never done me any wrong. Why would I deny him now? And they burned it up. What an amazing way to end your life. Fat and juicy. Jesus has never done me any wrong. We live in a world, of course, that is fixated on youthfulness. It's disdainful towards the elderly. It's terrified of death. And so perhaps more than other places, we are poorly equipped to deal with the pain and the frustrations of old age, of course, of which there are many. But old age is not only miserable because of its physical and its mental problems. It also brings with it the sadness and the shame of looking back on your own broken relationships and your failed endeavors, and your shattered dreams. You've racked up decades of lots of ways that you've been mistreated 
and overlooked and wronged by other people. Uh, Looking more broadly, when you get old, you've been around for a while, you've seen the world for a while, you look around at society and you bemoan how much it's changed, how much has been destroyed and lost. The world and your life did not turn out at all the way that you hoped or the way that you wanted. And so there is a serious danger in old age of becoming bitter and cynical. But this psalm says, you don't have to be or become a curmudgeon. That does not have to be you if you know who God is. There are real evils, there are real injustices in your life and in this world. We can and we should lament them. The psalms give us all kinds of language and ways to do that. But at the same time, as paradoxical as it is, you can and you should also be joyful, even in old age. It's a glorious and a beautiful thing to see an old Christian rejoicing in the midst of the pains and the declines of growing old. Somebody who's looking forward to meeting the Lord, somebody who is confident in the face of death, somebody who's constantly praying for others, grateful for what God's given them, looking for ways to encourage and share the gospel with their caretakers and their family members. It's an amazing thing to see. It's otherworldly. Hardly anybody can do this, just start acting like this when they turn 70. It's the fruit of decades of learning to joyfully trust the Lord, all in preparation for the great and the final battle of death. Some of you are already old. It's not too late to repent of your cynicism, your curmudgeonliness, Not too late for you to pursue gratitude instead, as hard as it is and as deeply ingrained as your habits might be. Most of us are not quite yet to that point. But even us, we need to be thinking about it. How are we preparing for old age? Most of us are going to get old. Most of us are going to die in pretty miserable ways. How healthy today, even before you get there, how healthy is your praise and your worship and your gratitude and your faith? You need to start preparing now. God's given us so much. He's done so much for us in Jesus so that the evils and the pains of this world don't have to have the final word. And so no matter how old you are, no matter how lamentable your circumstances, you can and you should be joyfully praising the Most High God. Why? He's faithful like He's always been. He's merciful like he's always been. There's never, ever going to be any unrighteousness in him. You can be grateful instead of cynical. Let's pray. Father, wherever we are at in our lives, help us to be growing deeper in joy, even as we also look honestly at the sadness and the injustice of this world. Help us to zoom out to see what you're doing, to see the depth and the wonder of your works in this world and on our behalf. I pray especially for those of us who are a lot older than the rest of us right now, so many temptations to become bitter and cynical and angry. Lord, help them to become models for us of deep joy and peace in the face of suffering. Help all of us, Lord, to age well, to die well, to show the world as we go out of it, that you are our hope and our rock. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.